From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. A new president will soon lead Colorado State University. Amy Parsons joins us. We'll ask about her priorities moving forward and the challenges of recruiting students of color and first-generation students. Then, a little-known legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., his influence around the world, specifically in Northern Ireland. And later, an exhibit at the Museum of Contemporary Art in Denver pays tribute to the Dirty South. It's absolutely a term in endearment. And honestly, before it was coined in hip hop, the economy of the South initially came from the land itself, the Mm. dirt. So it is the dirty South. It is a society with its roots, literally its roots in the soil. The convergence of art, music, culture, and history. I'm Diane Palaise, and we donated our car to Colorado Public Radio. It was the car that both of my kids learned how to drive on. When it came time to get rid of the car because it made no more sense to repair it again, we took a vote and we decided to donate it to CPR. The process was really easy. We had to have our title, which we signed over, and the tow truck came and took it away. It's easy to donate your car at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. Colorado State University in Fort Collins has a new president, and she's a familiar face on campus. Amy Parsons has spent 16 years in executive roles at CSU. She takes over the Fort Collins campus at, at a time of record undergraduate enrollment, but her appointment has not come without its share of controversy. Amy, welcome to the program. Good morning, Chandra. Thanks so much for having me here. So glad to be here with you. You said you plan to spend a lot of time in the next few months listening to the CSU community, students, alumni, staff, faculty. However, you've been with the university for a long time. You were the top lawyer on the Fort Collins campus, then vice president for operations, and then you went to the system office that oversees Fort Collins and two other campuses. Seems like those roles would have provided you with a fair amount of insight. What's topping your agenda? Well, again, thanks for having me this morning. I'm a, I'm a fan of CPR, and it's an honor to be back here representing my alma mater, Colorado State University, this morning. And yeah, one of my top priorities is to really build up and augment our leadership team. We have a number of open positions right now on the leadership team in Fort Collins. So I'll be assessing that really carefully, running some searches and looking to hire the very best uh, leadership team across all facets of the university and supporting the leaders that we have in place going forward. So that's one of my top priorities is to take a look at that and, and build one of the best university leadership teams in the country. And as you said, part of my responsibility here right out of the gates is a lot of listening. I've been gone from the university now for about three years, being a CEO in a private enterprise. So a lot has happened in the last few years over the pandemic and different changes. And to come back in now and to really listen to the leaders on campus and all of our constituency groups, not just on campus with our faculty and staff and students, but our constituents all across the state of Colorado who we serve and listen to what are their major challenges right now and their opportunities and how best I'll be able to support them. 
Now, one of those hires is a chief academic officer to run the classroom side of things. That's right. That's right. Our chief academic officer, who is also serves as the executive vice president of the university, really my my number two position. We would be a team in everything that we do at the university. That position is currently open. It's held by an interim right now. So we'll be launching the search for that position just in the next few weeks. That's going to be a really important hire. So... Um, even starting today, I'm working with faculty council and different leaders across the university to put together that search committee to go out and hire the very best chief academic officer that we can find. And your background is the business of running the university, but you kind of need someone to handle the academic side. Yeah, absolutely. I, I need a, a very strong person in that position who understands not just the academic enterprise, but the research enterprise, curriculum development, how we really develop that side of the house to meet the needs of our ever-changing incoming student classes and what the industry needs from our students when they're going out to look for their, their first jobs and their last jobs so they can um, really you know, be great contributors to our democracy, our society. In introducing you, we kind of alluded to a controversy. So several faculty leaders spoke out against your hiring in a confidential survey. Many faculty members said they disapproved because they felt like you didn't have the academic experience. And just wondering, do you think that puts you at a disadvantage? Well, I definitely hear those voices, and I appreciate the concerns that those faculty members brought forward, that they want a leader of the university who really appreciates the role of the faculty member who understands that the faculty and the researchers are the backbone of the university. And they want a leader who comes in and makes sure that she understands that, supports it, knows how to empower the faculty member, work with them in shared governance of the university. And you're right, I didn't come through the traditional academic ranks of a faculty member, but I've spent yeah, the better part of my career, almost 20 years supporting the academic side of the university. So there's no substitute for me being able to get into office here next month mm -hmm. and actually showing up every day and proving my support for the faculty and for the academic enterprise and the research enterprise. And, and that's really what I intend to do. And you've taught a handful of classes at the university. I have. I, I taught in a, in a master's program, the Student Affairs and Higher Education master's program. I taught the law of higher education. As, as you mentioned, I'm an attorney by background. So I've taught in the, uh, the area of the law of higher education and then higher ed administration. And it was, it was really a great experience for me to have that in-classroom experience with the students. There's really no substitute for that sort of person-to-person in-classroom interaction with our student body. Now, I mentioned CSU's undergraduate enrollment is at record high this year. Yeah. Do you expect that it will continue to grow? And I'm uh, just curious, what are your plans to keep it growing? I do expect it to continue to grow. It's, it's, it's wonderful to see us have a record-breaking class this year, not just in the sheer number of students coming to the university, but in the diversity of the class that's coming in itself. Um, we're always striving to make our incoming class of freshmen look like the, the changing population of the state of Colorado and reflecting the demographics of our changing country. So that's always our goal. And I, um, I really believe that this incoming class reflects CSU's commitment to access, commitment to investment in financial aid and making sure that students know that if they want to go to CSU, we're going to create a pathway for them financially to come to CSU. And that's our commitment. So I think what you're seeing is students are understanding and their parents are understanding the value of a four-year degree from a public research institution mm -hmm. 
and recognition that CSU really is committed to access for all the students who want to achieve that degree. So I do expect it to continue to grow in numbers and in diversity of the class coming in, which is really our focus. Um, looking out a few years from now, I think most people know that the overall number of students who are graduating from high school dips in a mm. few years. There's just fewer people graduating from high school for a while, for a few years in there. So it's sort of a pipeline but issue. It is. There's a pipeline issue coming. and um, But for us, not all of our students are coming straight from high school. As 18-year-olds into freshmen, you know, we're looking to bring in more transfer students, more students graduating from community colleges, more adult learners who are looking to come back to get a degree and to refresh their skills. So um, I do expect it to continue, especially with our commitment to access, but we're looking for learners all across the whole spectrum. Now, CSU officials recently testified to the legislature's Joint Budget Committee, and it spoke to, uh, I guess it's sort of like an annual report. and. Mm-hmm. Part of the discussion was the challenges faced in recruiting both students of color and first-generation students. Can you tell us a little bit about those challenges? I think part of the challenges are the national dialogue about the cost of higher education. There's a lot of discussion out there about you know, runaway student loan debt and things of that nature that I think dissuades a lot of people from thinking that college is for them, that they can access it. Students might determine at a very young age that they can't afford it, that their families can't afford it, without really understanding how much financial aid is actually available to them to go. I think it surprises people to know that half of our graduating student body graduates with no debt at all because they've been able to cover the cost through scholarships and financial aid and family contributions. And of the half that does graduate with debt, the average debt's about $25,000. And they're able to pay that off. The default rate is extremely low. So the national dialogue about runaway student debt simply doesn't apply to Colorado State University and most four-year public institutions. So that's a challenge. It's a challenge to get that message out that will work with anybody to get their financial aid packages together from federal, state, local sources, Colorado State University sources to make it available to go. That's a huge challenge to get that message out to kids so that they can decide at a very early age that college is for them and we're for them to get there. Um, We just opened a new campus in Denver on the grounds of the National Western Stock Show, the Spur Campus. Hmm. And a major part of that campus is to get K-12 kids from all parts of the state, from our far-reaching rural Colorado students to our urban students in there to really get inspired for the careers that they could have, inspired to go to CSU, and message to them very early that we're there for them with financial aid to help get them there. I thought it speaks to another sense of diversity that's not always thought about. Like you said, students coming from different parts of the state and different backgrounds. Like you said, rural, urban, all of that. Absolutely. Governor Polis has recommended a $70 million increase in operating expenses for state colleges and universities. But last week, 15 higher education leaders asked the governor to double that. From the standpoint of CSU Fort Collins, why is that extra money needed? Well, you know, and and like I said, I haven't started yet in this role, so I can't really speak on behalf of um, that consortium of higher ed leaders that are going into there. But yeah, I think everybody knows that the state of Colorado funds higher education in general at the very bottom of the list in the country, and that with runaway inflation costs right now, it's simply more expensive to operate our campuses. And as we've mentioned, we've got a very large incoming class of students. 
Um, and we need to continue to really expand that access for a lot more students to come into higher ed. And it's a it's an expensive proposition. Colorado State University and most of our public universities within Colorado are very efficient. Um, we're running, you know, very medium to low level tuition for our students. And that's our number one priority is to keep that tuition low and to not put the expenses of running the university on the backs of the students to keep our access mission. So the more the state can invest, the more we can do our job of getting competitive faculty and staff in there and keeping our tuition costs low and affordable. Speaking of students, you have a freshman at CSU now and another who is in high school. So how do you envision the classroom experience evolving over the next few years? Yeah, well, in my opinion, Colorado State University does that freshman experience, that on-campus residential experience better than anybody, (laughs) better than anybody in the state. I'll rival anybody in the country for how great that is, just creating a welcoming friendly environment for all of our students, a great path to their four-year degree, great academic advising. Fort Collins, the campus is a beautiful place to be. So I don't see that changing. We'll just continue to improve it class over class. Hopefully five years from now, the classes themselves will continue to be more diverse. As we've talked about, representing kids from all over the state of Colorado, all over the country. Um, So hopefully that will continue to change and evolve. And as, as industry changes, as society changes, hopefully we are changing with that as well and developing mm. curriculum that is really relevant for our students coming in to help them be as successful as they can be when they graduate mm. and start their first jobs. Well, Amy, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. Amy Parsons officially starts work at C- as, as CSU's 16th president on February 1st. When we come back... Dr. Martin Luther King's ties to Ireland. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. Throw a dart at a map of the American West. Chances are a Chinese community once lived there. So writes author Tiao Lim Go. We've chosen her shimmering new book, Western Journeys, for Turn the Page with Colorado Matters. The Chinese have actually ended up in many small rural places. Either there was a mine or they were trying to build a railroad spur. Get a copy and meet the author in a virtual event February 23rd. Free tickets at CPR.org slash turn the page. Monday marked the 37th annual observance of the Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. holiday, the only federal holiday in the U.S. commemorating an African-American. Of course, the slain civil rights leader has iconic status in this country, and there's so much information out there on him that it's pretty hard to find something we had not heard about him. Well, one one Colorado scholar has some fascinating, arguably lesser-known reflections on Dr. King's influence around the world, namely his impact on demonstrators taking a stand on the tumultuous conflict in, of all places, Northern Ireland. James Walsh is a professor of political science at the University of Colorado, Denver, who boasts proud Irish heritage. Jim, welcome to, the Col- welcome to Colorado Matters. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Well, let me start by saying that prior to working at CPR, I interviewed you and wrote a news feature about this very topic for NBC News, featuring you and some other scholars. And I was surprised by how few of the scholars I had reached out to and many follow King closely knew about this. And it's pretty funny that this article basically started with an informal conversation that you and I had. 
Yeah, I think this is a topic that's not terribly well known. Even among scholars, it's not something that's been explored in a great deal. There are a couple of people who have specialized in this now. Mm -hmm. So it's becoming more and more um, discussed and talked about. So protesters taking a stand on the struggle between British-dominated Protestants over a Catholic minority in the northern region of Ireland Ireland, would link arm-in-arm, marching through the streets, belting out the song, We Shall Overcome, which, of course, was a fixture in the American civil rights movement led largely by Dr. King. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, uh, the situation in Northern Ireland... um, was similar in many, many ways to what was happening in the American South and across the United States with racial segregation. Um, The difference, of course, being that the segregation was really rooted in in religion and sectarian uh, differences and a long centuries-old history of of parts of Ireland being occupied and the people being displaced. And so the people in Northern Ireland watched very closely what was happening here in the United States, the tactics and the strategies that were being used, mm-hmm. and they learned. They learned from it. They, um, they felt uh, the struggle they were witnessing on their television screens was, in some ways, their struggle. There, there of course, are big differences, but, but what they saw happening, they, they really resonated with them, and so they began to copy the tactics that they were seeing on their television screens. Well, King actually never visited <clears throat> Ireland. So from what I understand, this allegiance was basically inspired by television coverage of these southern sit-ins. It, it was. It was. Um, obviously, with the, you know, the television was still fairly new, and so that was a powerful thing. But there is a history here that's important to point out. Um, for example, Frederick Douglass visited Ireland um, mm-hmm. right at the beginning of the of the Great Hunger of the Famine there, and spent four months. Um, traveled all over Ireland, gave speeches and talks, and became close friends with Daniel O'Connell. He was really the first prominent voice of Catholic nationalism in Ireland, mm-hmm. and and, um, and he was also known as the Emancipator. He was he was very much um, anti-slavery, uh, and and maybe the most powerful voice in Catholic Ireland at that time. And he, he and Frederick Douglass became close friends. Um, Frederick Douglass talked about and wrote about his experiences in Ireland when he returned to the United States. And along with Martin Luther King and Malcolm X, there was a mural of Frederick Douglass as well in, in Belfast. Mm. That was just there in June. And so there's, there's a long history. This is not just about the 60s. It really goes way back before that. Well, it really just speaks to the influence of these leaders uh, all over the world. Yes, absolutely. Um, you know, the, the and in Belfast, there's there's thing, something called the Wall of Solidarity, and it's about a, a hundred or two hundred foot long wall with sections of murals, and each section is is um, dedicated to another struggle around the world that the Irish people feel an affinity toward. Mm-hmm. Um, somewhere in the world that's occupied, somewhere in the world that's colonized, somewhere in the world that faces a struggle with expressing one's culture and one's language freely and openly in one's faith. Um, the Basque region of Spain, for example, um, uh, the, the indigenous communities in Colombia and Central America, um, Che Guevara's on that wall. Um, <clears throat> 
So uh, this is <laughs> this is an important topic, and I'm so happy that that, that you wanted to cover it. I'll, I'll say a couple of things about what what happened in Northern Ireland. Um, the people began to sing "We Shall Overcome." in their protest marches. They began to do sit-in demonstrations, um, and they decided to copy the Selma to Montgomery march Mm. by marching from Belfast to Derry. And this, of course, is known as Bloody Sunday, and uh, uh, the congressman uh, in Georgia is is famous for this this Bloody Sunday march in in Selma across the, the Pettus Bridge. That's right, and that, that name, Bloody Sunday, of course, is a U2 song, and it was the name given to the massacre that happened in Derry, that, um, now known everywhere as Bloody Sunday. Um, so the people marched from Belfast to Derry to copy the tactic that was used to march from Selma to Montgomery. They got their geography wrong because it, <laughs> when the media would ask them where, what they were doing, they would say, on to Selma. But of course, the, <laughs> the Selma march began in Selma. <laughs> That's funny. (laughs) Um, Another thing is um, when Jerry Adams visited here in the 90s during the Clinton years, he was asked who he wanted to meet, and his first answer was Rosa Parks. Mm. And Jerry Adams was uh, leader of Sinn Féin and and involved in the IRA and um, one of the leading and still most controversial figures in Northern Ireland, and that was the person he, he, he most wanted to meet. So that's another indication of just how powerful that movement here was and influential in Northern Ireland. <clears throat> now bring us back to the uprising in Derry. Can you kind of set the scene for those who aren't aware of that story? Yeah, the Bloody Sunday. So um, the people were marching um, in protest to several um, policies that, that, you know, that essentially a kind of segregation and, and a, almost apartheid existed in the, in the northern part of Ireland that went back many decades and centuries. Um, it began with the penal codes in the 19th century that banned Protestants and Catholics from intermarrying, Catholics from, from owning land or weapons or, or congregating, uh, mm. very similar to the black codes that existed in the American South. Jim Crow. Very similar. Yeah. Um, and so, um, so they began to march and began to see what was happening in the South. The tactic of nonviolence began to resonate with them. And so one particular day, there was a massive, massive civil rights march in Derry, and it ended in the Bogside. The Bogside was a kind of a ghetto where the Catholic population was segregated to, and and they lived in very dense um, apartment buildings, um, very low-income, dense uh, kind of urban living. And the the march ended, and what they did in the Bogside is they set up barricades of cars, trash cans, cinder blocks, anything to keep the the Northern Ireland police out. And the police in Northern Ireland were were simply seen as a as a as an arm of the, the Protestant establishment. Um, police showing up in Catholic communities were never considered friendly. They had to they had to drive in armored cars when they were in Catholic communities because the Catholic population recognized that they weren't there to serve the Catholic community. They were there to police the Catholic community. And to brutalize the Catholic community. So when you when you say <clears throat> that, uh, I, I, it seems like it ties together. <laughs> why, you know, when you hear the the themes of this nature, you see the re- how this could resonate these two groups. Although, of course, worlds apart, different, um, d- totally different situation to some degree, but just the same kind of sentiment of feeling disenfranchised. Absolutely, one hundred percent. 
the economic level between the communities was 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 much different. Job opportunities, housing opportunities. Um, Catholics could only live in certain neighborhoods. In, in um, cross cross religious uh, uh, marriage was very frowned upon. It was very rare. So the, the Catholic community felt like an occupied community and. And what do you think it was about Dr. King specifically? Um, I mean, obviously, there's been many struggles and challenges uh, over the years. But what do you think about Dr. King that really resonated with this group? King's tactic and simple focus on human dignity. His, his channeling of love as a tool. All of that. Mm-hmm. All of that. I mean, occupation is a is itself a form of violence, no matter what what the face of it is. And so, the the community in Northern they were looking for for something new. Um, violent resistance has taken place in Ireland to this occupation for centuries, but when they watched what King was doing, I think it it, it was a new way, and that people who had not been on board with the resistance could get on board. And so in that march, there were women and children and elderly people and people who, who had not been part of any kind of violent armed resistance who, you know, nonviolence is a uniting idea, the philosophy of nonviolence. Because so it's it sounds rooted. like that may have been like the, the tie that binds here. Yes, the philosophy of nonviolence. Absolutely. It's rooted in, in love, love, love even for the, the person who oppresses you. That's the basic tenet of, of the philosophy of nonviolence. Now, in the interview that I did with you years ago in the article, you also noted Dr. King's influence on pop culture, including that Sunday, Bloody Sunday, a song written from the perspective of an observer of the notorious deadly uprising in Derry, is the opening track on Irish rock band U2's War album and another U2 song, Pride in the Name of Love is a song written in honor of Dr. King. Yes, and there's even a third called MLK. It's a beautiful song. But the lyrics to the to Pride Early Morning, April 4, shots ring high from a Memphis sky. Free at last, they took your life, they could not take your pride. So that wow. that's that's everything. And when that march confronted British paratroopers, the British paratroopers panicked. And they opened fire, and 26 people were shot. Mm. 13 of them were killed. It was, it was madness and chaos. And what happened is a disintegration of faith and nonviolence. Mm-hmm. And the IRA, the ranks of the Irish Republican Army, swelled um, fourfold in the wake of Bloody Sunday Massacre. So the, the same struggle that the African-American movement, that the Chicano movement, that the American Indian movement faced between nonviolence and, and a more, a more uh, militant resistance is the exact same debate that was happening within the Catholic community in Northern Ireland. Which tactic do we use? Do both work? Should we always be, you know, that kind of debate broke out. <clears throat> wow. Uh, in our final moments, um, anything else you think we should know about this connection? Um, well, when Barack Obama visited Ireland, they they put an apostrophe in his last name, Obama. <laughs> you know, he's, his 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 mother has, has that's strong, clever. <laughs> strong Irish roots. But I'll, I guess I'll just end by saying that um, 
there's a there's a fascinating change happening today in Irish studies. Irish studies um, today is for the first time expanding its scope and its lens. And one of the biggest reasons is that the the, the trend of people getting their DNA um, studied to, to find out about their roots has has revealed that nearly nearly forty percent of people who identify as African American have some Irish roots. Wow. Nearly forty percent. Yes. So Irish studies is now a, 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 an exciting new, wide-open field, and much of that is, there's lots of reasons for that, mm-hmm. um, but much of that is is the fact that both communities were, were, were struggling and trying to survive in the same, the same jobs, living in close, close proximity, and having, in some ways, similar experiences. So, um, so anyway, there, there's something called the Irish-American, I'm sorry, the African-American-Irish Diaspora Network. If anyone's interested, you can find it online. Yeah, it kind of makes you think of that quote from Dr. King, an injustice anywhere threatens justice everywhere. And so this kind of kind of connects these two points here. Yeah, and there's also the Afro-Celt sound system, which is a fusion of musical traditions. So. Professor Walsh, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much. I'd love to be here. Absolutely fascinating. James Walsh is a professor of political science at the University of Colorado. He joined us to share some fascinating insights about American civil rights leader Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s influence globally, specifically in Northern Ireland. Professor Walsh is the co-author of the book Irish Denver, author of Michael Mooney and the Leadville Irish, and founder of the Romero Theater Troupe an all-volunteer human rights theater troupe in Denver. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Fixing an entire education system isn't simple. It's like, oh, it's not equity, it's CRT. And it's like, do you even know what is CRT? They can't tell you a thing, but they can tell you that it's racist. I'm Joe Erickson, and Systemic from Colorado Public Radio is back for season two, asking hard questions about the American education system. Systemic returns January 10th on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. If you really want to understand Denver International Airport, you should talk to the people who shine shoes there. Well, that's according to DIA's CEO, Philip Washington. Denverites Rebecca Tauber did just that. She headed to the Terminal Hall to speak with the CEO of Executive Shine, a local operation that's been keeping souls clean since the late 80s. Jill Wright got her start shining shoes at a hotel in Denver. I just started talking to people and just asking advice and listening to them. I just realized, like, wow, you know, you're a Supreme Court justice, but you need caring too. Wright's message of love works. Scores of reviews cite both a good shine and a connection with staff. Her shoe shiners get invited to family dinners and Broncos games. Lifelong customers drop off bags of shoes on their way out of town to pick up when they get back. Austin here at 
but the pandemic has been tough on the shoe shining business. Executive Shine closed for three months and mainly served pilots and other essential workers after reopening. Air travel has bounced back for recreational travel, but not as much for business travel, shoe shiners' main clientele. Wright says business is at about 35% compared to pre-pandemic levels. So she's adapted. Executive Shine has started running team-building workshops, teaching business people to shine each other's shoes. Jonathan Soto has worked at Executive Shine for 20 years. He helps run the workshops. When they out of the program, I see people cry. CEOs requested the program to help staff connect after so much time working remotely. Jonathan's wife, Tara Soto, feels the power too. People really accept you um, and look at you and looked at me for who I was. Her favorite shoes to tackle are the dirtiest ones. She loves when ranters come straight to the airport from the National Western Stock Show, cowboy boots covered in mud. She loves it even more once she makes them shine. Rebecca Tauber, Denverite. When we come back, the convergence of hip-hop music, art, history, and culture. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. One of the country's first rodeos took place in 1869 in Deer Trail, Colorado. Today, top rodeo prizes can be hundreds of thousands of dollars. Back then, the winner won a new set of clothes. To start every year, cowboys and girls compete at the National Western Stock Show in Denver. Later in the year, weekly competitions in Steamboat Springs and annual events like the Pikes Peak or Bust Rodeo, Cattlemen's Days in Gunnison, and the Greeley Stampede, which was first called the Spud Rodeo in tribute to the potato crops around town. And celebrating all things rodeo all year round is the Pro Rodeo Hall of Fame in Colorado Springs for the people and animals who've made their marks in arenas around the country, like the bucking bull who threw almost every rider who tried him before retirement in 1995. His name was Bodacious. A Colorado postcard from CPR with the support of Coble & Company. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. So, Chandra, have you been to the MCA, the Museum of Contemporary Art in Denver, before? I have not, and this is my first time, and I'm super excited about this. <laughs> that is CPR arts and culture reporter Eden Lane and I heading to check out an expansive and, dare I say, edgy exhibit that closes next month at the Museum of Contemporary Art, Denver. The Dirty South celebrates the visual and sonic impact of hip-hop music that hails from the American South. It takes up the whole building, so we traversed three floors to experience the work of 60 artists. Ellen Bruss Senior Curator Miranda Lash was our guide. So how did the relationship with the original curator and the original exhibition begin for MCA Denver? So the exhibition was curated by a fantastic curator, Valerie Cassell Oliver, who is at the Virginia Museum of Fine Arts. And she spent a good number of years in Houston developing deep relationships with artists in the Gulf South. She then moved to Richmond and built this show to really take a, a very expansive look on the history of artistic output from the early 20th century to the present. We are the fourth venue. MCA is the only venue not in the American South, but it actually feels deeply relevant to bring this show here because we believe you need to understand the legacy of the American South to understand American history writ large. You know, I do think it's extra exciting because 
it's not in the South. And right. really, art and museums should be about educating people, yeah. enlightening people, and exposing people to different things. And I think that, you know, being a native of the South, uh, originally from New Orleans, and also my second home of Atlanta, uh, I, I must say I love Denver, I love Colorado, but it's so not the South right. <laughs> in so many ways. But that's also what makes it fun and interesting. But, uh, you know, I'm excited to illuminate the South because a lot of times we hear the negative, the history that is not necessarily favorable. And, um, and you know, it's just exciting to illuminate these artists and and kind of how they took over a genre that was really dominated mostly by New York and in that part of the country and eventually other parts of the country like Los Angeles, the West Coast, and you had the East Coast. But then as, as we hear, uh, Outcast in 1995 saying the South has something to say. That's right. But it's like this though. I'm tired of folks, you know what I'm saying? Them closed-minded folks, you know what I'm saying? It's like we got a demo tape and nobody want to hear it, but it's like this, the South got something to say. That's all I got to say. And it was actually that moment that inspired the curator, Valerie, to take this on as an argument, saying there is a distinct visual language coming out of the South. And more than that, you have to understand the connection to music and sonic connections to get the whole picture. So it's divided into three sections, and of mm -hmm. course, visitors can explore it in any order or or lack of order that they choose, but just so we can get a sense of it, can we start with the first section, which is? Landscape. So as we walked through that room, what stuck out to you? Um, I just thought the interpretations of the South, like the aspect of children playing in the street, but then you have children under trees, kind of a more of a rural kind of theme, but then also the interpretation of fireflies <laughs> represented in almost an abstract way. So it's just kind of fascinating the different ways that the artists express themselves. And then you have this watercolor of these plantation homes and um, just kind of the different incarnations of aspects of the South. What was interesting is uh, as we walked through, you pointed out that unlike a normal exhibition here where it's contemporary art that spans a few decades. Can you talk about that again? Yeah, so the curator felt that uh, you needed to have context to understand what artists working today are talking about when they when they make work about the South. So, and also the legacies. Um, so, for example, to understand how, like, uh, an artist like Samella Lewis or Bill Trailer is informing much more recent artists like Kaneem Smith or Nathaniel Donay. Um, so they're all here together. That was Miranda Lash, the Ellen Russ Senior Curator of the Dirty South, which centers hip-hop music at the Museum of Contemporary Art, Denver. Afterward, Eden and I sat down with Valerie Cassell-Oliver, who curated the traveling exhibition. Valerie, could you tell us, please, how this exhibition came to be? What was the spark in your soul that caused you to put in the work it took to create this? Wow, that is a good question. I will say I came to the Virginia Museum of Fine Arts in 2017. And prior to coming here, I was working with the Contemporary Arts Museum in Houston. And it was very evident to me that there had been a shift in the, the sort of way that artists who were living and working in the South were thinking about themselves and about the legacy of the South. It uh, was this 
they were really moving in a way that had a newfound pride and narrative to it more than I had seen in previous generations. And so that made me really want to sort of investigate where this new sense of self, where this new Black South was coming from that was so heavily invested in it, the legacy of the South, uh, but with a different kind of bravado. What was the the impetus? What was the moment where that piece of art or the conversation or the event that made you have that realization? Can you t- take us there? It, there were a number of things. I have been working with many artists who uh, were living and working in the South and who were from the South. But I noticed that the way that they were using materials, that they were looking toward not just um, the big icons of contemporary art, which happened to be mostly white and male, or artists who were living North, who were African-American or Midwest. They were really looking at people who we would call folk artists, people who, um, what I love to call our um, our intuitive intellectuals, you know, those street corner ministers, you know, that they were really looking at the way um, they were looking at materials and the, um, the sort of weight of materiality, whether that would be hair or whether that would be things having been used and the language that was being used, um, that materials had a certain kind of resonance to them because they had been used or they had uh, a previous life. The way that they would discuss materials and the way that they would use what we would consider traditional art materials in ways that were that were outside, you know, a kind of willful misuse, as I like to say, mm. of, of <laughs> materials that that was really drawn from this sense of not necessarily always sort of, you know, having a very interesting angle of how materials were used. And that was a direct correlation with how we categorize art and art making and art practices uh, that would be from the African-American South. And then I started looking at those African-American artists who were living in the North, but who had ties to the South. You look at someone like Jack Whitten, and uh, after he passed away, there was a wonderful book that came out called Notes from the Woodshed, Mm -hmm. which is how he began to frame his practices that had everything to do with growing up in Alabama, Bessemer, Alabama, to be, be, you know, be specific. So there were these overlays that even though these artists were born and raised in the South, we don't ordinarily think of them as Southern, but they carried so much of the South with them and embedded those aesthetics into their work. So it it made sense that this, what I was seeing as a new sense of bravado was really always there. And it was how it manifested some ways very subtly, but certainly with the younger generation, just outwardly, you know, pressed forward, you know, and what I began to liken that to was the sort of rise of Southern hip hop that sort of gave a new narrative to the South that did not exist, that had um, prior to that really been rooted in trauma, the trauma of the civil rights, that this was just a very new way of seeing oneself as an African-American. And I wanted to see how that manifested in the art, not just for that generation, but then to tie it back to those other artists who had gone before them, who had really been embedding that piece of South in their work all along. 
this exhibit has been lauded by the New York Times, the Los Angeles Times. And, uh, you know, so it's really catching a lot of attention. And reading up on this exhibit, I read that the Dirty South makes a bold statement about the intersections between Southern culture, visual art, and music. Valerie, I was just curious, what, in your own words, what do you think are those intersections? Well, again, you know, when we think about notions of bending time, space, sound, it's also the mending. I mean, it's the conceptual framing of how we look at the world. And that has certainly manifested not only visually, but sonically. So, you know, we look at things like the use of materials, the the way I always likened it is to think about jazz and how jazz is often celebrated as the original American music form because of all the cultural intersections that took place to give it rise. But my statement was, what would be the visual equivalent of jazz? Where do we find this notion of improvisation? Where do we find the bending of not only notes, but the bending of materials? Where do we find the same conceptual framing that we use in Black music? Where do we see that and how do we see that? That's where those intersectionalities come from. It is conceptually how artists approach their particular disciplines. And so that same thing happens visually. When we link think of improvisation, we also think of the quilts of G. Spen. We think of Mm -hmm. African-American quilts in general. But there's also something to be said about collage. And there's also something to be said about conceptually how you frame things, how you can use language, language which is so tied to the sonic, meaning in terms of lyrics, how we can take words and misuse words to create new meaning. How do we take materials how do we transform those materials? What becomes transformed in the misuse of things? So those are the types of overlays I was seeing in terms of the sonic and the visual. So as you pulled this together to make this really cohesive journey for us, as we walk through this exhibition, how did the structure take form for you? How did you uncover that for yourself? Well, I I looked at music, particularly, again, uh, contemporary Southern hip hop, because... I see a theme developing here, Valerie. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, that was, was, you know, the introductory text begins with the South has something to say. I mean, and that was it. The South has always had something to say, but it is something about how it manifested in that contemporary Southern hip hop that really kind of gave inroads and mirrors to reflect the things that had always existed, whether it was talking about the landscape, whether that's the natural landscape or the man-made landscape, Mm -hmm. uh, whether that was talking about spirituality in, in its largest manifestation, not just about Christianity, but about spirituality in the South, naturalism, syncretic religious practices, Christian religious, Muslim religious practices. The South has become so multifaceted, but in terms of its African American journey, um, you do see naturalism, you see spiritualism, you see the syncretic religious forms and how that has always been reflected in the visual arts. Uh, you also talk about the black body because, again, 
there is no South without the Black body. I mean, <laughs> we came here because of the land and because of the, the necessities of hands that needed to work that land for the economic growth of this country. So it is South to America, if I'm going to coin Imani Perry's book. The African-American journey is the American journey for Black people, um, for the most part. Now, we're not a monolith, so there have been people coming from other parts of the world that have transplanted here that did not undergo the issues of slavery or Jim Crow. However, the bulk of Black people who live in this country, that is their legacy. That is what we've come from. And so really wanted to also express that journey through the African-American lens. I wonder if you think that even for those Black Americans who don't have that experience that you were describing, they still are participating in that experience by people foisting it upon them, even if it isn't their own experience. Exactly. Because to the outside world, black is black. It doesn't matter whether you speak with a uh, a Caribbean accent or not. I mean, you know, you inhabit a black body, and the Caribbean has its own journey, which is very much parallel to the African American journey. So, yes, we still live contemporarily with the residuals of that history. So it doesn't matter where you come from right. if you're in this country. We're still all dealing with the residuals. And that was one of the intents of this exhibition, was to make that plain, not just from a narrative of pain and trauma, but to make that plain also from a space of resistance and resilience and uh, a sense of preservation and how we persist regardless of other people's intentions. And great dignity. And with great dignity, absolutely. Well, the exhibit, of course, is called The Dirty South. And I know for some people, they might be taken aback by the term. I think it (laughs) definitely needs to be clear that this is actually a term of endearment. And it is one that hip hop artists actually coined. And as a former Atlantan, I know I heard the term quite a bit. (laughs) But um, I just want to make that clear because I can see someone going, the dirty South, like, why would I go see that? You know, I mean, like not getting the reference to it being a term of endearment. It's absolutely a term in endearment. And honestly, before it was coined in hip hop, it was a term that I understood as a term of endearment and a term that meant that the South itself was was a land that was an agrarian society and an agrarian economic power. The economy of the South initially came from the land itself, the Mm. dirt. You know, so it is the dirty South. That is it. It it is a society with its roots, literally its roots in the soil. So uh, it was an interesting conversation I had very early on in presenting this exhibition for development here at the museum, because that was a concern, you know, that language, the dirty South. And it's Mm. like, but that is a part of it. That is our history. Valerie Cassell Oliver created The Dirty South, Contemporary Art, Material Culture, and the Sonic Impulse. The exhibition, which centers Southern hip-hop music, runs through Sunday, February 5th at the Museum of Contemporary Art, Denver. Thanks for joining us today and to our Dirty Up High, okay, Mile High Colorado Matters team. Tyler Bender. 
Carl Bielek, Anthony Cotton, Pete Kramer, Andrea Dukakis, Rachel Estabrook, Michelle Fulcher, Matt Hers, Michael Hughes, Chris Ketchum, Pedro Lumbrano, Patrice Mondragon, Shane Rumsey, Ryan Warner, and I'm Chandra Thomas Whitfield. This is CPR News and KRCC.